Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I am Adam Pawatic. I am sitting here with my co-host, Aaron Cameron, and our guest today is Jim Murphy. He's the president and CEO of the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario, also known as FERPO. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you, Adam. Aaron, great yeah. to be here. Thanks for coming, Jim. This is uh, this is an exciting episode for us. It's uh, a lot of interesting topics to get to. Um, a lot of things happening. A lot of things going on right now. Yeah. So just to give everyone out there, you know, what we're going to talk about, we're going to we'll start we'll start high level. You know, talk some about the new CMHC policies that have just come out, um, and keep getting sort of smaller. Talk about some of the provincial legislation that's changed, and then and then lastly talk about uh, some of the municipal um, landlord licensing, specifically to Toronto. So apologies to those that are not in that region. But if you're if you're a Toronto apartment owner, this is going to be very relevant. Yeah, to we'll, your we'll talk about a lot of things yeah. for you. So so first, Jim, you know, uh, tell us how you got into first. And, and how did you get into this industry in the first place? So um, I've only been actually at FERPO for three months. It's been um, uh, incredibly busy three months, especially the last uh, little while with what's been going on uh, in terms of the provincial government and rent control, which we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. But uh, before that, kind of an association background, I um, did my undergrad at Waterloo in planning, so kind of have an urban housing sort of background. And um, worked for the Board of Trade, worked for the Home Builders Association, which is now called BUILD. Uh, and ran uh, the, uh, it used to be called the Canadian Association of Accredited Mortgage Professionals, or CAMP. They've rebranded to Mortgage Professionals Canada. Now at uh, FERPO is what kind of the acronym we go by. Mm-hmm. Uh, FERPO was an organization relatively young for an association. It was created actually the last time all of this happened around uh, rent controls. So sort of in the 80s. And all of the various uh, property managers and uh, apartment owners came together to create the association. So uh, great organization, very focused on sort of uh, government issues and regulation because it's a very highly regulated industry. Uh, and uh, there to represent their interests. We do other things too, association, and we have um, different events. Actually, we have what we call our RTA seminars, the Residential Tenancy Act seminars going on right now. We have uh, six of them across the province that we do. We have a whole bunch of other events. We have other services that we provide to members. It's a corporate-based membership as opposed to an individual-based membership association. Um, so um, it's uh, it's a great organization. It's a great industry. I'm excited about it. And as I say, it's um, it could have picked a better time in terms of at least the the busyness of it all in terms of all the issues that are going on. Keeping you on your toes for sure. Yeah, absolutely. When you mentioned we mentioned events, I am reminded that your spring social is next week, and Aaron and I will be in attendance. So it's, oh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, um, and um, those are the other sort of side of things. You know, we're going to talk about some of the issues and just sort of policies and stuff and what's going on with the industry. But you know, the other side of an association is to provide networking, educational opportunities for uh, members. So <clears throat> we're just going through an RTA update. It doesn't include all the stuff that was just announced recently by the province, but there's even been changes over the last year. So that's important to provide education to our members. They get sold out and people want to know about that there's also to any association there's a social aspect networking is important people want to meet others and come together uh, so that's also an aspect of any association it's a good source especially particularly for landlords i'm pres- presuming that the majority of the memberships are, are apartment owners Yes, although we do also have suppliers. Uh, so you know, like a wise meter, uh, for example, would be a, a member. So we do have suppliers, but um, uh, in terms of our board, uh, apartment owners. 
and I, I would I would suspect or I actually know this that it, the landlords. I mean, it's it's kind of a an isolated industry. If you're if you're an apartment owner and you own let's say 100 units over six buildings, it, it's there's not a lot of interaction with other apartment owners, right? You, you don't get to uh, you don't go to an office every day and sit next to somebody else that's doing the same thing as you. So this is a great way for apartment owners to get to know each other, meet each other, and talk about the business that they're both in, right? Uh, absolutely. In. And we've had some great people involved and great organizations, and it's really led to the strength of FERPO. Uh, in terms of uh, the role that we play and have played. Uh, so we have some uh, some really, uh, really important. And, and the other thing about who comes to FERPO meetings is it's, it's, it's the top of the companies. Um, so it's not like the two or three rungs down sort of thing. Um, nothing against those people, but you know, when you want decisions made on a policy or something like that, or a financial commitment, uh, having those people in the room is really good and really important. And it's, it's a way to share information, right? Yeah, share absolutely. ideas, share you know what they're doing, what they're thinking about. I mean, a lot of hot topics. We don't have to get them today, but energy efficiency, things like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So do you want to jump? Let's jump into CMAC. We're going to talk about some of the federal legislation that just came out, and we'll, we'll try to run through this pretty quickly because I think ultimately we want to talk about how the layers of, of legislation that's coming through uh, impact the supply of, of new units coming on and just what's going on in the marketplace. And that'd be provincial level. Yeah, yeah federal, yeah. provincial, and, and then you know some of the municipal changes that they're making as well. And, and uh, again, apologies to those outside of the GTA, but this is, this is going to be predominantly Toronto-focused, <laughs> and uh, unfortunately that's just the nature of the beast sometimes. You've got, you know, this is right now kind of the hot spot in real estate in the country. So CMHC, for those that are unaware, CMHC has recently released um, a, a slew of policy changes. I mean, I'll, I'll, it's probably about 50 or 60 updates to their um, multi-residential mortgage insurance policies. Uh, and predominantly, it's, it's a, it's a, they're positive uh, for apartment owners out there. The, these changes by CMHC are pragmatic. They're, it's really a movement from by CMHC. And this is really the first overhaul on their policies for a long time, as, as long I as I can remember. 2003 was the last Yeah, one. right. So you're talking 14 years since they've made any real any real significant changes. And, and they're, what they are is they're kind of moving back towards market. I think they, they did a really good job of going out, uh, talking to people, um, talking to apartment owners, talking to lenders, talking to anybody and everyone in the industry uh, to get some feedback about what could CMHC do to, to be more relevant and, and to make it easier um, while still maintaining sort of their mandate to to create affordability in, in, in apartments and, and housing. And and a lot of the changes, I mean, we, we don't want to talk about the specifics, but quite frankly, they're just, they've, they've created, a, uh, you know, some changes to their guarantee or their recourse requirements. So it's a little bit easier uh, to do some CMC insured financing without having to provide, say, personal guarantees all the time. Or uh, you can do non-recourse loans, uh, you know, up to 65% where it used to be 60%. So a little bit more leverage without providing any guarantees. Uh, they've done some changes to their requirements for non-residential space. I think that's a big one. You know, there's a lot of uh, product throughout the country. Remember, this is this is CMEC, so it's federally. There's a lot of product out there where there are uh, retail component on the main floor and then apartments for two or three floors above. Uh, CMEC's old policy was it couldn't have any more than 20% of the space to be non-residential. So if you had retail with three floors, that meant the retail was, you know, presumably 25% of the space, which would make it, you know, um, it would prohibit it from being CMEC insured. They've now increased that requirement to non-residential space no greater than 30%. So really that means anything that's now three floors uh, or less can be financed by CMEC. So I think there's a ton of uh, apartment owners that have a retail component to their property that are now now going to be subjected to CMEC financing uh, and which, you know, at the end of the day, allows them to get cheaper financing, which hopefully results in, um, um, you know, uh, lower rents or, or more more affordable rents for those for those tenants, and as well, given that 
so many new developments, uh, small new developments focused on mixed use. Well, 100%, right? Yeah. You're seeing a lot of that, those new developments having a, a substantial component of, of mixed use, whether that's some, some retail on the main floor, some office for the second or third floor. I mean, I'm hearing new now, you know, new new developments where there's, there are schools on the second and third floor because, you know, some urban environments you need, you need those, those places of education. Uh, so, so, and you know, some of the other stuff that they've done that maybe is more specific to our topic today, our conversation today, is um, change some of their construction financing, apartment construction financing requirements. Uh, you know, it used to be that you'd have to have a rental achievement holdbacks, meaning that you know the, the lender would hold back a, a, an amount until you'd you you had basically achieved stabilized uh, revenue. Uh, they've they've eliminated that requirement. Uh, they've 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 changed their their premium structure. They 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 really are trying, I think, to to provide uh, more attractive financing in the apartment space uh, which I think you know going part and parcel with with some of the provincial changes um, you know we'll get to that later but it might have a positive impact at least uh, I think it's gonna have a, a hugely positive impact and there are I mean the industry wants to build I mean there's a lot of interest in doing that um, we've seen the reports that have been out there of uh, the commitments to new uh, purpose-built rental for example and uh, you know and smaller projects mixed-use projects um, so that's that's good news. But it's interesting, you know, it's kind of on the one hand, you know, government gives and, you know, some of the things we'll talk about in terms of rent control it kind of takes away on the other hand. But what it does say is that there is a real renewed interest in purpose built rental, uh, that people government sees it as part of the solution in the overall housing mix. Um, we've had a lot of you know talk in the Toronto area and Vancouver Lower Mainland about the housing market in terms of home ownership and those sorts of things and a lot of emphasis on that. But um, we are now seeing sort of a renewed interest and so policies by CMHC in terms of their lending uh, criteria help with that and 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 hopefully make it easier and hopefully make it uh, viable for for projects or, or for people to proceed. And uh, that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, when people look at their performance and other things, they're also looking at, you know, some of the other requirements uh, in terms of moving forward operation, that sort of thing. And, and sometimes there it's not always good news. So it's, 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 it's an interesting take. But I think overall there's a real desire at all levels of government to try and see more uh, rental as part of an overall housing mix. We're, we're seeing that new commitment. And I, you know, my my feeling about what what CMHC's done is they acknowledge that not every apartment building is the same, right? So some of the new ch- additional changes are um, accepting bulk leases, right? I mean, it was kind of a silly thing where you you might have a, an apartment that rented out, you know, twenty of their hundred units to um, some sort of non for profit affordable housing um, entity, and that would then therefore eliminate that subject property from being CMHC insured, right? There's a there's a landlord you know, actually providing uh, affordable housing and can't get CMHC financing. So they've now acknowledged that if you have a bulk lease to something like that, um, you know, you can, you can still qualify. Uh, and they've acknowledged that furnished suites, I mean, they used to have this sort of, uh, you know, they used to think that if it was a furnished suite, you know, therefore it was a hotel and therefore we didn't, we didn't want to touch it. But I think they've had feedback from landlords saying, no, no, like often there are tenants that are fine to furnish suites are attractive that maybe they're here for a couple of years or, or just recently moved to the country or, or whatever it may be recently they, divorced or recently <laughs> divorced yeah like there's some there's some valid reasons so they okay simple solution okay well we'll allow uh, furnished suites um but they have to be for long-term occupancy okay that's that's a simple thing to govern right so i i think we're we're, we're and it's all new and this is just a couple of days now but i think it's we're, we're we're optimistic that these changes will have a positive impact on on um on financing and on just the housing in general across the country in terms of construction new project commitment uh, absolutely everything it's all yeah good. all it's everything all good. right it's good it's good for landlords out there if you own an apartment building, I think this is a positive thing. Yeah, and I know that um, 
I'm sure the gym scene is too, and you're speaking to the people that are part of your part of FERPO. Everybody is looking at apartment construction right now, and projects are getting off the ground. But we are on the brink of a, a whole substantial amount of building as long as conditions remain favorable. Absolutely, and that's what it's all about. Yeah, Absolutely. legislative change is a large part of that, so that's why right. looking at all these closely, you can really. Yes. It, it would help address the supply side of the problem that uh, Toronto's having in terms of housing. Uh, for sure. And, you know, uh, you know, the provincial government said, well, you know what? We had an exemption in Ontario for new approvers built rental from rent control. And we'll get into some of the stories as to why the government was revisiting it from a political point of view. But their argument was there was no sort of purpose-built rental constructed for those, you know, 20-odd uh, years. And what we've seen in the last couple of years, because of a whole number of factors, uh, interest rates, other things, is a, you know, a renewal in terms of interest. We had a 50% increase in the Toronto area last year in the building of new purpose-built rental. And we had, uh, through one report, through Urbanation, uh, 28,000 units in the pipeline for purpose-built rental. First couple of weeks of my job, I went through actually a couple of new projects. Uh, went on, uh, Greenwind did one up on Keewatin, went through, which was a great project. Did one up Park Property, did an Isabella downtown. Um, I mean, these are great, great projects, and they're serving an important need uh, in terms of housing uh, and to have that mix. So, yeah, you want more of that, and you want more choice, and you always want more options because that um, deals with the pricing uh, on the rent side. Uh, the less you have of that, obviously, the, the lower the vacancy, and that's not very good for tenants. I will say some of those that you've mentioned proudly sponsored by, proudly financed by First National. <laughs> do you want to move to the Ontario Fair sure. housing plan? There's, I think there's this, lots to talk yeah, about. Let's, so, <laughs> so where do you want to start, Jim? I mean, I think this is your this is your domain. So, what, what's the most interesting thing I, that you would you would pull out of that? Well, you know, um, there are the, the aspects of it itself and sort of the, what, what's uh, part of it. I think it's kind of interesting to note what started it all. Two months ago, uh, you wouldn't have had many changes to rent control at all. And so then there was a couple things in the news media that got a lot of attention. Um, one of them was a CBC reporter and her rent went up. And the other one was dealing with, uh, with uh, a bank, Urban Corp, bankrupt builder who um, uh, wanted to, you know, uh, through the bankruptcy receiver, um, get as much back as they could on the dollar. And so there was a doubling of rents. Uh, in one project, which got the front page, I think, of every paper and the lead of every radio newscast. So when you've got a premier who is pretty low in the polls uh, and a government that's low in the polls, they look at those sorts of things. And so um, that started it off and just other issues coming to the fore. So this is all part of that. So I'd say like two or three months ago, we wouldn't have seen anything on rent control uh, in Ontario, but because of the politics of it and just some of the media coverage, it's a really interesting story and case study of how quickly something can move. I mean, you can be dealing with government for years and nothing happened. Here, something has come up and in two or three weeks, you've actually seen legislation. It's very unusual. I mean, it it speaks to the times in terms of uh, the political times and was asked by the media and a lot of the announcement that was made last Thursday and then the legislation uh, more recently, uh, was announcement was made on April 20th, did a lot of media on that. And they were asking, was this sort of a political? And and we said, yeah, it was a political statement uh, and a political announcement uh, because, you know, the government wants to give a certain narrative out there. So... You know, nobody supports a doubling of rents, uh, but there are other more practical solutions that meets the government's political agenda of sort of limiting these increases, but also allows for investors to have a return and for there to be new purpose-built rental. And that's what we're really all about, and that's what we were talking about in terms of the exemption. So more recently, the legislation's been introduced, the 1991 exemption in Ontario. Um, just to explain that a bit, any um, purpose-built rental post-1991 was exempt from rent control. 
Meaning they could increase their rents, meaning the yes. landlord could increase their rents at any amount at any time. Yes. Assuming that the other party agreed to pay it, of course, is the other. Well, I mean, yeah, you could vacate yeah. that, effectively yeah. pur- purposefully vacate the unit if you wanted to, right? And so that was um, going on, and um, so that's why we saw some of the recent stories in terms of that. So, uh, But you know, the, the unfortunate timing of all this is that we are seeing, as you talked about earlier, both of you talked about, we are seeing this renewed interest in rental. Uh, and the projects that you're financing, the interest that's that's out there, and um, there's so much of it, and you know, there's so many projects. I mean, here in Toronto, the classic intersection of uh, Bloor and uh, Bathurst, uh, Honest Ed's old site, was supposed to be a thousand rental units. So we have a lot of these projects that are out there. And uh, we're trying to convince the government of that. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, these are all sort of uh, a term that uh, was used by the government was luxury apartments. Well, we're a big believer in the filtering effect, which is to say you have new rental and people may move from an existing building, freeing up perhaps more affordable units. And now that's not going to happen. And in any event, you need the supply. Uh, You need supply overall. And we have a a pretty low vacancy rate in Toronto. It's pretty low vacancy rate in other urban centers across uh, Ontario. And so putting this into place, which uh, takes away sort of uh, that investor confidence, is going to be nothing but negative in terms of potentially overall supply. So a lot of the builders and apartment owners are all looking at their projects right now. Um, they're doing their performance to see, you know, with this change and some of the other changes that were announced, whether they should proceed or not proceed. Uh, certainly most of them are on uh, re- under review. Uh, many of them may. There are unique circumstances. Land may be free in certain situations, other things that are in place uh, that may make a project viable. Um, but in other cases, they may not be. So um, that's important to come forward. I think the, old, the other thing that's really big about the 1991 thing is that in some ways you can argue in Ontario, you had hundreds of thousands of new rental units built, actually. Uh, they were called condominiums. And so a lot of people will rent out a condo. They may have one or two, three units as an investor. And now all of those units are caught by rent control and they're limited to one and a half percent a year. It's going to be very difficult for them to evict people because they've changed the eviction notices. Um, We've got now in Ontario a foreign buyer's tax uh, that may affect investor buyers. And we've also got a change that the government's looking at for assignments for uh, when you purchase uh, sort of a, a blueprint before registration on a condo. So there are a lot of things that may affect the condo market mm-hmm. also um, in terms of these changes and we'll have to wait and see on that. But overall, none of it is good for supply in the sense you don't get purpose-built rental or you don't get, uh, or you get condos sort of getting a flood of them on the market to be sold. Some people may see that as a good thing because the prices might come down, but that means less supply. And these are small investors who you know really don't want to go through all the hassle of dealing with a bureaucratic uh, uh, landlord tenant board. Uh, and going, and you're not going to get there very quickly, and have decisions made very quickly. Um, really, that whole system, the whole rent control system, is really sort of was created for a different sort of uh, relationship between tenant and landlord, not necessarily small investors. So there are a lot of changes the government made, um, and um, they also dealt with above guideline increases for utilities, which no longer can be passed along. And they're also talking about a, sta- a standard lease agreement for uh, apartments and. Um, Many of our members have their own, and it's important in terms of some of the features that are in there. So specific to the the, the property, specific yeah. to, to the, the the amenities Insurance, that may be offered, yeah, exactly. yeah, right, yeah. all that sort of stuff, and for, that's for important. the small uh, for the small one-off 
landlords, the standard lease might be a good thing. Uh, but yeah, for the large operators that have a few there, thousand But there already owned. is more or less like a, 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 a standard. I mean, it's not mandated. It must be used. But you know, if you're a small landlord, you can go on to, I'm not sure. You can go website, on the FERPA website if you're a member. It's one of the services we provide. One yeah. of the benefits we provide. We have yeah. uh, one of the lawyers who specializes that we have those forms. Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to go back. I mean, one of the first comments you made about, um, you know, maybe the sensationalization of oh, rents are being doubled and people are, you know, being taken advantage of. I mean, t- to your point, there were a couple stories out there, but you know, there, there, there are market forces. I mean, at the end of the day, that this is that we're we're in a we're in a capital, uh, you know, sorry, uh, um, you know, supply and demand impacts what you can charge. So uh, you can't just double the rents because no one's going to pay that, right? So I mean, th- th- there was this notion that. You know, these tenants must be protected. But at the end of the day, um, there was no one out there. I mean, there, there was very little uh, abuse of that system, if any. Right. It was really just a media took control and, and sort of you know, were getting clicks on their website. And so in both cases. So the CBC reporter, she uh, I think she had a 40 or 50 percent increase. She created a Facebook site. I think she got like seven or eight hundred followers in a pretty quick amount of time. CBC News for the next two weeks on all their media platforms, social media, radio, TV. This was the whole thing. Was uh, was rent control, and they were specific to 1991 because she was in a condo. And the same thing with the other situation uh, in terms of the doubling. It was a condo, um, so none of our members, uh, you know, were involved and, and would do that because in the long term it doesn't benefit because you they, we understand that. You know, rental housing is highly regulated and changes can be happening. Whenever you have a change in government, there's always a new piece of rent rent control legislation. Um, But it does deal with supply. And so we had all those condos as supply, uh, not only in the Toronto area, but other urban centers across the province. And the question is going to be, does that continue? Do people say, I got a great tenant and, you know, I need the income? Or do they say, no, it's too much of a hassle. And by the way, now my, uh, my income won't match my costs, especially if interest rates and mortgage rates start going up. Because uh, I could be able to pass those along, so um, these are these are really fundamental questions. So you know, I think the key issue here is housing supply. We may not see the results of that for two or three years. Because it takes that long for a development to go through the process anyway, right? Yeah. If someone's already decided to build an apartment building, they've got the zoning in place, and they've got the construction started, or, or what, what have you. It's it's happening. They're not just going to stop yeah, They'll now. do it with a frown on their face, but they'll do it. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. and just to go back, I mean, it, it's not the, the FERPO's defending the landlord that doubled the CBC no, reporters. No. Right? We're not saying that, that was right, but I think no. if you, you're talking about, you know, how many units are there in the universe of the GTA, whether they're condo or apartments, and these are extremely rare circumstances that seem to be... You you know, blown to be more significant or more representative of the greater issue or more representative of, the, of what was happening in, 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 the, in the industry, which was just not true. Right? Exactly. And, and that, you know, I call it a red herring. I mean, I did a lot of media on that, particularly with regard to the doubling one, which is out in the West End of Toronto um, by the bankruptcy uh, receiver. So, I mean, that's not the, not even a landlord, actually. So, I mean, um, but unfortunately, when those things kind of get out there and there's, you know, you, the tenants are, can be a very well-organized group and there's a lot of sympathy and there's a lot of sympathy for fairness. Uh, the premier called her housing announcement the fair housing policy. And beating up on landlords is an easy target. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and But there's nothing much fair about the policy uh, overall. I mean, there's a lot of things in here that the government could have done to uh, promote uh, purpose-built rental. And, and really, we wanted to have a conversation with them to come to middle ground on some of these issues uh, to say, look, at, you know, we don't support that, but, you know, this is what would, we would need in order to have construction continue. 
I think it's I think it's important to clarify. I mean, certainly you've acknowledged that the protection of tenants' rights is important, but it's yes. doing it the right way so that we can continue to to see the development and to see the you know, the, the continuation of more more building and more development of apartments, right? And that that's the real mandate by FERPO is to do it in a fair way so that we do provide more we supply more units to the marketplace, which in effect keeps rents down and, 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 and makes things more affordable. Well, absolutely, because you're going to have more supply, which benefits tenants. It's, it's, rent control is um, unfortunate in the sense that there's sort of short-term gain politically, but there's a lot of long-term pain. So, and there's no there's no capex in buildings that are high, yeah. and they're highly rent controlled. There's a few factors that uh, kind of work against it. Uh, one thing that I noticed in the news that really, really got under my skin was the constant uh, referencing of it as a as a loophole, they're going to close the loophole. It wasn't a loophole. It was a very purposeful legislation in 1991 to incentivize building. This is not uh, this is not some obscure law that people are abusing. It was uh, well, absolutely, um, and it was brought in by the NDP government. It was brought in by Bob Ray in 1991. Even the said to the media, even the NDP had an exemption um, because they understood that it was it was purposely done, uh, reinforced by successive governments of different political stripes who uh, saw the value of that. And just at the time when we're going to see that, this is now put into question and everybody's reviewing their projects to see how it'll work out uh, with the changes that are in place. So so let's talk about how it impacts the development. So why is it? I, I, you know, Listeners are out there saying, okay, so now I'm a developer and I'm building an apartment building and I can't just re- increase my rents at any level. I have to be man- mandated so it, it or managed by, by this 2.5% rental increase. But it, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm leasing up the unit, I'm leasing up the, the the building I just built. I can I can charge whatever I want. So how does it impact me going forward it, it, as it, the developer? So, yeah. so still, I mean, every developer and, and you guys are in this business in terms of uh, doing their performance is going to look at their um, the costs of doing that and what their expectations are. Um, and sometimes they may plan it over a certain period of time. And if they can't get that revenue stream coming in, the other thing that I think that they might be worried about is, okay, they just made this change. What if they make another change? Mm-hmm. Uh, the uncertainty of it all. I mean, that's called investor certainty. I mean, that's another thing that I think is important in any jurisdiction is to have investor certainty. If you keep changing rules all the time, it's going to it's going to hurt people. Um, but you're right. The market in terms of supply, I mean, we've got a very low vacancy rate. So, you know, one of the reasons we asked, you know, the, the premier's office asked us, why are these people building now? Why now? And so we did a survey on it. Interest rates came out, but also uh, government certainty in terms of regulation was very important. Yeah, market rents in terms of the ability to go to market rent right now was also on that list. And there's no question. And here's the here's the linkage between the home ownership market and the rental market. The home ownership market becomes very expensive, and people can't afford a down payment or whatever. They're going to start looking at the rental market. And so uh, you saw rents rising and the market can be there. So somebody can look at the, the rents they may be able to get uh, for a project. But that's also predicated on the current environment and the current marketplace. You know, uh, who knows, you know, if something happens on the home ownership market, this foreign buyer's tax or something else, if the governor of the Bank of Canada starts to increase interest rates a year from now and, and, and that becomes a bigger issue in terms of mortgages for home ownership and stuff, people, that may change, right, in terms mm. of what rents that a new purpose-built might be able to get in terms of the market. I mean, it's, it's not set. That is, you know, an advantage. We have some members who, um, you know, one of the reasons they talked about building and have opened new ones is because they can go to those uh, market rents right now. Uh, there's something to be said for that. But the question is, does that remain in the market? The market can change. Yeah. Just to, to create the linkage, you know, if I'm a if I'm a developer and I'm de- debating whether I build a condo or I build an apartment building, uh, this legislation impacts both of those decisions. But I, I think from as a developer, I get the pre-sales. I can sell my units before I even put a 
put a shovel in the ground. So there's a bit more certainty that I'm, I'm going to realize the returns for my investors building a condo versus an apartment building. I've got to be pretty confident that when I build it, I can lease it up. I can get a revenue stream that justifies the the cost of the development in the first place. So absolutely, uh, it, 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 these these changes, these this new legislation just adds another question mark. It adds a bit more uncertainty for whether the the development will be successful. Whether I'll actually be able to to realize the returns um, that I, that I need to keep my investors happy. So I, okay, well then you know what? I'd rather just stick to my condo model because I'm I'm more confident that that I'll, I'll be able to, to execute on that. And we and, had, and it protects against uh, future legislation changes as you as you kind of uh, right because you get sure. in you yeah, get in sure. you close yeah. you build yeah. it you sell the units and you're out right you don't have to worry about any any future changes we we have members that do both we do have members that do both uh, purpose-built rental and also condominiums uh, and I mean there could be an impact there will be an impact on on the condo market that's something to keep an eye on because um, well certainly I mean to your point I think you mentioned it earlier there are condo buyers who are buying yeah, for, for, investment. For, for investment purposes so yeah. if I'm now buying that condo and I'm thinking okay wait a minute now I'm not sure exactly what kind of revenue stream this is going to generate for me okay you know what I'm going to go buy some you know EFTs or whatever right yeah buy uh, yeah, some nice uh, good returns on a on a read or something like that uh, but it, which may be uh, you know, better. So there is that uncertainty. And um, it, I think it'll affect both sides. And, you know, we think that maybe people, if they don't go with a purpose-built runner, are just going to build a condo. Um, but we'll have to see how the market um, uh, goes in the next little while. In BC, when they brought in some of these measures, it took two to three months to really mm-hmm. figure out what the impact was going to be. Because the first week or two, everybody's kind of in shock and, and surprise mode, and they're all reviewing what uh, the impact is. And they're kind of, you know, there's a lot of internal sort of uh, research being done, a lot of numbers being run. And I'd apply that to the consumer marketplace too, by the way. And then you kind of have a bit of denial. And then usually by the second or third month, uh, the impact is there. Whether the impact's there in terms of activity or whether the impact's there in terms of price. Uh, So you'll know by then. Commenting on that Vancouver market, I mean, do you have any sense of how it's worked out? I mean, there was there legislation similar to what we've seen in Ontario, and it's certainly the foreign buyers tax or, or uh, what we're calling the non-resident speculation tax. But um, I mean, they're pretty similar in, the, in their structure. I'm, they're exactly know, the, the same. same. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and I, from my understanding, what that it's a that, foreign tax. Yeah, it's a foreign. What, from my understanding, I, that really impacted the luxury market in, in Vancouver. I mean, the five million dollar homes are now worth four million, but the million dollar homes are still worth a million bucks, more or less. Right? So, so what happened in um, and just a comparison between Toronto and Vancouver and a couple things and I'll do a comparison on rent control too because that's important what happened when the foreign buyers tax was introduced in BC was that activity dropped significantly 30-40% prices have dropped and as you talked about at a certain uh, end of the market Mm -hmm. but overall we've seen some recent um, news that uh, they're actually leveling off if not increasing a bit there was a bit of a drop but Seems to have stabilized now. Yeah, it's stabilized. The usual yeah. reaction to fear. It's, uh, yeah. it, can be, it can be irrational, and then the market stabilizes again. But there was a definite drop-off, and still is, in terms of activity. So activity is down, um, but not necessarily prices. And in certain markets, that may be the case, as you're talking about the luxury uh, market. The BC government then also started to make some changes to it in terms of who qualified and didn't qualify to it when they, you know, were looking to see what the results of it was. But I think it, it you know, it, I think it had an impact in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, and I think that that was something that was probably, uh, you know, from an economist's point of view or from the bank's point of view, uh, a positive thing in terms of what they thought was perhaps an overheated market, just like here in Toronto. So you are absolutely uh, right, Aaron. It is a foreign tax. It's not a, it's not a speculation tax at all. A speculation tax is a very different tax. Ontario had 
a speculation tax of the 1970s. Bill Davis brought one in, uh, and I don't know if it was 20, 25%. So if you sell a property within two, three, or four years, whatever the, the I forget what it was, uh, you pay that tax. So that's a speculation tax. Oh, was that blanket for the market? Yeah. yeah. And so, and you would go after um, what you would consider to be investors or flippers or however you want to call it. It's a flipper tax, speculation tax. This is not a speculation tax. This is a foreign buyer's Buy tax. tax. So it was just rebranded differently. The other thing I just want to say on the rent uh, control in BC is that um, it allows CPI plus 2% new builds do. That's what we were looking for for our purpose-built rental buildings to try and get new construction that way to provide some more uh, certainty. Uh, so BC in that sense has a, uh, a better system for rent control and for new buildings uh, than Ontario does. Does Ontario finalize its plans in that regard in terms of uh what the rent control would be for buildings built past uh, 1991. I think I read uh, one of the FERPO updates that uh, you were advocating a 10% cap uh, year so, over year. So when we were, um, know, we were um, when this all came out because of the media stuff we were talking about earlier, we knew it was, you know, when the premier gets out in front and does something, I'm doing something about this. You know, as an association, you got to get your act together. I'll put it that way. And, and one of the things in government relations is, you know, if you know something's going to happen, it, it is usually a pretty good idea to be proactive and try to get out there with some solutions. Not that every member agrees or not necessary. So we provided two things. We provided a rolling exemption. So the NDP had an exemption. We provided the idea of a rolling exemption of 20 years. Uh, some members I've talked to said maybe they could do a little less than that, but uh, that would be tied to when the uh, building is constructed. The second option we provided to the government was a cap, just like you were talking about. So uh, CPI plus something. We said CPI plus 10%. But again, you know, if you have a discussion, some builders in terms of what the returns are could be less than that. Uh, in terms of new uh, purpose built. So we were trying to provide the government with a solution that would avoid 100% rent increases, but also allow for investment and for construction. And so we thought that was really a win-win situation, if I can put it that way and, and not be a pun with the premier. But it was a situation where we could have, you know, got the best of both worlds. And so in terms of post-91, we now have one rent control system in Ontario, uh, applicable to all rental units, uh, whether they be purpose-built rental or whether you be renting in somebody's basement or in somebody's condo. Hmm. Do you see a black market forming? This is a bit off topic, but do you see guys saying, okay, well, I, if I don't have a formal lease and I'm going to rent it to you, but you're going to pay me in cash and, you know, do you see more of that happening? If I'm a condo, let's say maybe that's on the apartment side, I think it's more challenging, but certainly on the condo side, if I buy a condo and I want to, I want to rent it out, um, I'll try to avoid, you know, you know, this landlord tenant relationship. It, you know, so in the, in, in the um, Residential Tenancy Act, the RTA, which is the rent control legislation, all these things are prohibited, right, in terms of key money, all these sorts of stuff. Um, is And the government's actually strengthening it as part of its new legislation. But I don't think the system is set up for all the stuff that's coming in in terms of condominiums. I mean, you've got tens of thousands of units that are now coming in under rent control. And the system's not set up for that. And, and a, a landlord base that, I mean, ignorant might be the wrong word, but I can't imagine if you're a one-off owner that you're going to pay a whole lot of attention to rules and regulations. Not sophisticated. To, yeah, no, sure. yeah. exactly. And not wanting to deal with it all. So I guess it relies, you know, on the tenant um, and that relationship. But if, 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 if we're right and supply is going to go down, it may take two or three years and vacancy goes down, there, there may be desperate people out there, right? Because it's going to be harder to find a place because you know, we may have less rental than we we're going to have, certainly less than the 28,000 Urbanation was talking about. And we're likely to have less, although we don't know in terms of the condo market, because investors are such a large percentage of that market. 
Um, we have to see how that goes. But as I say, there's been a couple of reports on that already of, of uh, owners of condos putting them up for sale just because they don't want to deal with it because they're, they're going to lose money. They, they can't make money at one and a half percent with all the other costs that are there. And it doesn't it doesn't incorporate, I guess, or maybe it does. The, the, this concept about utilities uh, does do maintenance fees get grabbed into that into that legislation? That you know, if I may, if I'm a tenant or a, sorry, a condo owner, and my maintenance fees go up, you want to pass that down to your tenant. Uh, does that fall under this restriction on utility utility increases? There's a system in place for above guideline increases. Uh, the government's getting rid of the ones for utilities. But uh, you know, if, if you're a condo owner, uh, an investor, small investor, and say you know you you get hit with a big assessment, the parking garage needs to be done or something like that you know to I mean it's gonna be very difficult to get that through the system in terms of what uh, past practices and 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 as a small investor you're gonna have to pay somebody or you represent yourself at the landlord tenant board to do all of those sorts of things so there's really concerns about some of those costs getting uh, passed on in terms of utilities for economy it's not an issue because they're all metered um, you know capital costs probably wouldn't be there you know, you're not going to necessarily repair your own balcony, for example. So there are issues that uh, probably wouldn't affect that. But, you know, if your, um, yeah, if your maintenance fees went up a whole bunch in a year, um, it's going to be difficult. I mean, um, and these are sort of the world that you're in and where these people are now making judgments about whether I continue to own. Or get into that marketplace in the first place, which then yep. may actually impact the development of condos, which is just further restriction on the supply. Exactly. Do you want to talk about? I mean, there are this the sixteen point plan that Ontario released. There are some things that they've they've put in here, which which presumably would would be to encourage supply. I mean, I'm looking at looking at rebating a portion of development charges, one hundred twenty five million dollar five year program uh, to rebate development charges, uh, and then another one where it's a higher taxes on vacant land to sort of you know unlock so some land that might just be sitting there vacant for for whatever reason. Do you have any comment on that and how that might impact the supply side? Yeah, so when the government said we're just going to freeze things for post-91, they, and they did hear our message about uh, purpose built rental. So they brought in what you were talking about, which is the um, $125 million. It's only five years, $25 million a year. It's not much compared to the rental uh, universe. If you're talking about twenty eight thousand units coming on stream, that's exactly. not big money. Yeah, if you do it three hundred a unit, I mean that's that's you know, we're talking almost a billion dollars worth of development yeah. there. So twenty five million is gonna go for the first, you know, three days of the year. Well, and, and in Toronto, I think the development charge for a one bedroom is about twenty five thousand. Might be off on those numbers, but not by much. So, you know, that gets you a thousand units. Uh, if you were to say if if they were everything else lined up right in terms of your so um and that's just one year um so yeah and and also that program we had a meeting with the ministry of finance on friday uh is not for luxury rentals uh that's the new word uh not for luxury rentals and that means basically market which is a lot of these projects so they wouldn't even qualify so luxury rentals you mean is anything that you could charge market rents for which you basically assume you're going to get when building it because you're comparing it to stock from 1972 yeah. Well, it's also, yeah. I guess, how you're doing your financials in terms of making the project work and why you're going to make the investment. Well, that's something I've not seen yet, although I'm sure we'll soon, is that, you know, I'm speaking with a handful of people about building uh, apartment buildings. And so I've seen their pro formas, but I got to think there's going to be a revised a revised uh, document put forward. On the per square foot rents? Per square foot rents, but also just uh, for growth, you know, these all right. include kind of five-year time horizons for these oh, buildings. And that's what, yeah. you know, when they look at your cap. So, I mean, it's 1.5%. That's another thing the provincial government did a couple of years ago. The cap, you could never go above two and a half percent in Ontario. So even if we were to get inflation two, three, four years down the road, um, the current rules are 2.5%. So just back to the development charges, there were the other thing that the government announced was something on assessment, which is to say that if you're building a new purpose-built rental, 
the municipality must adopt the lowest residential assessment in that uh, in that municipality. So uh, it was um, it, they're mandating it now for all municipalities. It was optional before. So the city of Toronto, for example, did adopt it. Ottawa did adopt it. So if you were building a new rental, like some of the projects we were talking about earlier on Kiwatin or Isabel, they would have gone into that lower residential rate, which has an impact. So I've talked to a couple of members who are building in municipalities where it's 1.4 or 1.5 in terms of the assessment. So that will benefit them. There is, um, uh, of all the things they announced that could be beneficial to multi, uh, to purpose-built rental, the multi-residential assessment. But there, a lot of municipalities are already there, so it's not necessarily a big thing. But in those municipalities where it's not, you can have a positive impact. In regards to the taxes they have to pay? Yeah, what they're assessed at, exactly. Yeah, okay. Do, do, you, do you have any comment on the... Uh the higher tax on vacant land. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how that how that impacts things. They're just saying, well, if we if we make the vacant land or we we encourage the vacant land to be developed, therefore supplies coming online. It seems kind of empty to me. This is um, this is a sort of a discussion between the government and developers. So developers um uh, have been and we support obviously in terms of supply. We've been talking about supply. Uh, we need more supply. We need things to open up. Uh, we need more approvals. We need streamlining of the planning approval process, all that sort of stuff. And the government's saying, well, no, 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 no. There's there's land out there that you're not developing. So we're going to go further. And we're going to tax it uh, if you're not developing it. And so, I mean, you know, then you get into approvals and how long. They, I mean, people want to build. You know, the market is the market, what it is currently. But you go through the approval process. I mean, things take time. They don't happen. You were mentioning earlier, things can take two or three years, uh, at least for some of these projects, right? So it's, 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 the government's being very punitive in that. I don't know how it'll actually work. I think it's a, it's a, a gain, uh, an enabling piece of legislation that would allow the municipality to do it. I don't think they're talking about provincial tax, uh, unlike the uh, foreign buyers tax. But it is punitive. And there could be timing, uh, development timing issues as well. If your neighbor is building 700 units, you probably don't want to launch your project right at that time. So you can sit on it for two or three years. Exactly. Pay higher tax results of it. It's uh, well, And you may also have 15 projects on the go, and that's the 16th project, and you'll get to it in four or five years from now. I mean, you, you exactly. can't just develop 15 projects at the time. I mean, there's, there's, no. there's resources required. That's exactly. People, that's how people go broke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, maybe maybe a bit off topic, but is there is there an example uh, nationally, internationally, North America? America wide that that um, would be you know you would say hey this is the way it should have been done um, like a city that got it right yeah that, that gets it right I mean or is is the answer just you know um, no no rent controls you know just more leave it to capitalism and, and, and the market forces so you know in the United States if you look at the US there are many places that don't have rent control so in a place like Dallas or Houston you're getting 40 50 thousand uh, purpose-built rental a year it's a phenomenal amount, which speaks to the issue of supply, right? And then the supply can be there, and then that deals with um, uh, the rent levels and, and, and what tenants are paying, which is the political side of the uh, discussion. You know, I think this uh, this goes back to the 1970s. It goes back to the 75 provincial election campaign, and Bill Davis was going to lose it uh, at the behest of Stephen Lewis, who was campaigning on nothing but rent controls. And so Bill Davis and the Conservatives brought them in. And I think there are ways, you know, everybody, you know, you don't want a system necessarily that's unbridled uh, at all, but you do want uh, a system that allows for fairness and fairness, not just in a one way street in terms of tenants, but also for investors and for apartment. We have a lot of great apartment uh, owners and people in the industry and the industry has changed over the last 10, 20 years. We have the REITs involved. We have the pension plans involved. We have the insurance companies involved. Um, These are all people who are making long term investments. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, they want to make sure that the product they build and, the, the, you know, what the assets that they hold are also, you know, in great condition. We've had a lot of investment in capital in terms of upgrades and renovations. So you want something that's in a mix uh, for that, you know. Or rewards for those for yeah. those landlords that are actually doing that. There's I, a lot of great landlords speak out to, there. Speak to First National. I mean, we do a ton of financing for capital improvement projects, right, which are major landlords that come to us saying, I want to I want to redo all my balconies. I want to redo all my amenities. I want to you know, incru- improve the quality of my building. Um they should be rewarded for that. Absolutely. And some of that is allowed for, although the government's going to review that too because they're reviewing everything, it seems, unfortunately. And we are in silly season 14 months ahead of an election. But, um, you know, I think Toronto's growing by 100000 a year. You do have pressure sometimes in the system. Uh, the Conservative government in the 1990s, the Harris government brought in vacancy decontrol, which was a really important feature for the industry. It was uh, uh, adopted from B.C., uh, which means when a, a unit goes vacant, then it can go to market rate. Uh, that really brought back uh, the investors that I'm talking about and really helped the industry because before that it was very, very difficult. And we don't want to go back there. And these measures that have been introduced are really kind of setting us back in that direction uh, in terms of their punitive nature, in terms of the harmful effect they'll have on the existing stock and on new supply. Um, so yeah, there, there's got to be a, a balance. I don't think I don't even think Patrick Brown and the Ontario PC party is going to get rid of rent controls. I, I, that's just not on. They're not going to put that in their platform. But what you can try and talk about and have a conversation about is putting in things that are reasonable and that and if you can show benefit tenants because there's more supply, hence the rents will go down over time, is a good thing. So yeah, we have we have different examples across the world um, of you know Quebec. Uh, may have stricter rent controls than we have, but other jurisdictions have none. Uh, so not a lot of development going on in Montreal these days, though. No. I mean, there, it's, it is, there are some, but not nearly to the same extent as Vancouver or Toronto. Right, and so that speaks to having a balanced regulatory environment for rent control, which is say you want to protect tenants, understand that, but we've also got to have something on here that in terms of investment, in terms of return, Otherwise, that's not going to, the upkeep's not going to happen and the uh, the new is not going to happen in terms of the new um, purpose built. You need to find that balance. We were there. Uh, and so that's what's so disappointing about this uh, in terms, and, and as I said, we presented alternatives to the government that would have solved their political problem of 100% increases, which was a total red herring and a one-off. But anyway, let's, let's use that. And also allowed for the continuation of investment. We still might see some of that. As I say, we're surveying our members, um, but it makes it more difficult. If you could remove, if you were given a magic wand and you could change just one item of, uh, of uh, the recent provincial changes, which one would you change in order to most benefit uh, FERPA members? So I, I think certainly the 1991 exemption was, was key for our members because they had a renewed desire to build and wanted to build. And um, so now it's not to say that some of them won't, some of them may. Uh, but everybody's looking at their uh, their numbers uh, again. Um, another issue that is really important for members is sort of what the cap is. So, you know, the premier, when she was minister of municipal affairs and housing, put in the two and a half percent cap. And, you know, that was also done in a similar sort of fashion, if I can put it that way. And that has a real negative effect also on the industry. So that uh, is something. The other thing, of course, if the, if the government was ever to take away vacancy decontrol, which was brought in by the Harris government in the late 90s, that would have a real significant impact. That's kind of the line in the sand. If you ask any landlord... For, any for just to clarify that, vacancy decontrol is when a tenant leaves on their own volition, uh, you are allowed to charge whatever rents 
whatever market rents are for that particular unit. So there is that 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 lever, I guess, for for landlords that if you have a, a tenant well under well under market rents, you can only increase rents, you know, based on the cap. But if that tenant does leave, you can re-rent that unit at market. Exactly. And vacancy control would have a more moderating moderating effect on gross income increases than right. I mean, what they're what we're talking about is if you've got a tenant paying eight hundred bucks, and let's say there is vacancy control, you may only be able to charge you know additional ten percent above what you were getting for that unit before, versus being able to charge market, which yes. is which I think is you know, to to some degree still um, a benefit, right? To the to or, or sorry, put it the other way, where the landlords are still it's still a way to, to maintain their revenue streams. Yes, right? and, and so. On average, from what I hear, and it may vary from landlord to landlord and municipality to municipality, it's about 20, 25% uh, on average. And that's really important because some of those um, those costs can perhaps be accommodated by increasing, uh, well, the market rent, what the, what the market is there um, and what, what it's willing to pay. Right. Well, we see we see rent rules all the time. You'll be 20 unit building and 19 of them are at $1,000 a month and one of them sitting at 650. Well, your entire rent roll would look like that if there was uh, vacancy control in place. Yeah. And they would- I mean, for some context, I think it's important just to mention that, I mean, um, and I don't know what it is today, but I know historically over the last couple of years, vacancy rates in the GTA and, and Canada world, Canada wide, but GTA in particular, hover around 1%. Right or or less in some in some neighborhoods, right? Sometimes they're they're less than less than one percent in many neighborhoods in the, in the sort of the GTA downtown core. So we're not talking about an environment where there's you know a ton of a ton of excess product out there. Right? No, no, and um, but usually five years is the magic number. If you're renting for more than five years, you're going to be a renter for life. It's it's not a fast rule, but generally speaking, if you're renting, you know, if you're likely to move out if uh, below five years. That's, so, that's the tipping point in terms of commitment to a building? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and commitment to staying there. And so, um, you know, whether you're young, you're starting out your career, you're getting married, you're starting a new job, whatever, you, you want to buy a condo or a, a home. Um, so that's it's kind of in that first uh, five years or, or, or new Canadians that come to the city or come to Canada. Uh, that's kind of a, a, a magic number in terms of, um, you know, vacancy decontrol. Do you want to, uh, we may as well keep going. Let's dig down even further to the municipal legislation that's come up. Do you want to talk about... More good uh, news. Uh, talk about <laughs> what... Uh, and this, I guess, so this, I mean, the greater theme of this conversation today has been about, about supply and the impact of the provincial legislation. And these these don't really have much impact other than, you know, I guess just more requirements and, and legislation and loophole or, or sorry, uh, hoops to jump through as a, as a landlord. And, and more costs. So um, the city of Toronto, the province of Ontario has allowed municipalities in Ontario to... Um, to license landlords. The uh, city of Toronto has purposely said we're not having a licensing regime. They call it a registry regime, but if it looks like a duck and quackles like a duck, it's a duck. It's a, Every apartment uh, in the city of Toronto will come under this. They will pay a licensing fee on an annual basis uh, determined per unit. I think it's $10.60 per suite. Uh, and they will then get a pre-audit inspection from the city where one of the city workers will show up and go through the building to see what deficiencies there may or may not be based on a, a score. And um, so that's that's the system that's in place. Uh, all buildings are in. We have a program at FERPO called the Certified Rental Building Program, CRB program. And we're working with the city to try and get some recognition for it. And so a lot of our members are part of it. It's it's a great program. It's, it's a uh, environmental features, you know, in terms of things dealing with uh, maintenance, um, in terms of, you know, how, uh, dealing with tenants, uh, all of these things. It's really, and you might see some of the signs around the city for those who are in Toronto. 
Um, you know, it's got the big check mark in terms of a CRB approved building. Uh, so we have a whole series of things uh, as a, uh, an accreditation and we've got a lot of buildings that are in it. And so we want some recognition from the city for that. Um, and that's, that's a tenant protection issue. Yeah, people, absolutely. people want to avoid slumlords and that's a great way of vetting it. For sure. Yeah. And, and we're really, we're really proud of the program and uh, we've done a good job. We've had a lot of members that have signed up to that. Uh, so we'd like some recognition that they're not the problems like what the city should be focusing on is unfortunately there are uh, a small amount of, uh, of of those landlords who don't take their properties uh, you know upkeep and capital and whatnot and that's where really the city should be focusing the resources it doesn't need to focus them in other places where uh, people continue to make those investments so um, yeah we're coming to a new registry system that's gonna be in place July 1st in Ontario there's pre audits that go through to October uh, and then it'll be an ongoing thing. And, and um, you know, the city goes out, they, uh, they have a lot of inspectors now, and they'll go through a lot of things to see what's going on in the building. Do, uh, do they have any ability to enforce? Yeah, they do. They issue orders. So, um, and, uh, and they can have penalties, monetary penalties also on, on top of that. Um, and actually just getting back to, for example, um, one of the biggest issues with apartment buildings is elevators. Mm-hmm. So the uh, province, as part of the rent control change, said you cannot pass an above guideline increase for elevator maintenance until it's complete. So um, those are the sorts of things that um, you know the city can come around and they see deficiencies and they can then issue orders and issue penalties and they'll give timelines for certain things to be uh, you know um, fixed up uh, back to normal. There, this is the difference between a licensing system and a registry system. In a licensing system. You know, you get a license, and a municipality, whoever the regulator is, presumably would be able to take that away. Well, you're not going to take away a building's license, but what are you going to do with all those people that are there? Um, you're just going to shut it down and, and, and have those 20 or 300 people go somewhere else when they got nowhere to go. Um, so that didn't make much sense. Um, the city realized that. But we're looking for some recognition for uh, our CRB program, our Certified uh, Rental Building Program. That's a good program. And we're responsible landlords majority of landlords have made these investments and thought ahead and been very progressive in terms of putting money and resources into all of these well, things to make their building better let me just read I and mean, i'll read some of the requirements for those listening that maybe are unfamiliar with this topic and i'll just pick a couple here can't rent a a, a unit uh, that you are aware has pest issues whatever that may be so i i, I you know I know there are very, very few landlords out there that would be, be consciously aware that there is, you know, uh, some sort of bug infestation, but still rent that unit out. I mean, I don't think that that doesn't really apply to almost all landlords. Develop a process to receive and track tenant requests. Of course, every major landlord, every major sophisticated landlord does that already. Yes. Um, you know, post stickers or posters to identify correct places for waste and recycling inspect common areas at least once a day for cleanliness i mean most of these things are kind of silly i mean you go around the go around the room to all of the major uh landlords in this city and they'll all, of course they're all doing that there's like you said unfortunately there's just a very small minority of landlords that may not take their their um, the quality of their building and the upkeep as seriously as they should and those are the people that the city should be focused on absolutely in public policy when you form legislation unfortunately there's a rule everything goes down to the lowest common denominator so um, rules are brought in to deal with uh, a relatively minor minority, uh, and everybody has to um, you know adhere to it. And it's unfortunate, 
Um, they should have brought in a program, enhanced a program to focus on those uh, trouble bills, which they know who, where, where well, they are. Well, if you've had more than five orders uh, you know, applied to your building in a year, you go onto this list and you now are sub- subjected to these types of requirements or something. I mean, it could yeah. have been really simple to, to, it, yeah. to manage or administer. And that's right? information that actually that they already have. Yeah. You know, anyway. I just come back to supply. Like, you know, I think in order to meet our housing needs, you know, in the Toronto area has grown by near 100,000 a year. We've seen increased immigration levels. People have to live somewhere. Uh, we have demographic changes. You know, uh, 20, 30 years ago, uh, single people buying condos or buying homes was kind of unheard of. You see a lot of it now. I was talking to a condo developer uh, a couple months ago, and the per- largest purchaser of their condo building subset unit was single women. Um, so we need more housing. We need more uh, supply in order to meet those changes, growing population, different demographics. And so, you know, having government policies in place that work um, and, and support that and aren't a hindrance is, is a good thing. Uh, we Listen, we all want to make sure that there's programs in place that deal with um, those uh, those in our society who don't have the means. And um, we've got programs in place for that. And I would argue a lot of that has to do with income as opposed to necessarily housing. The same people have problem paying a rent, have problem paying daycare or anything else. Um, and so it's more of an income issue necessarily than a housing issue. But we do need supply and we need to work together to ensure that uh, all levels understand that. Great. Well, thanks very much, Jim. This has been um, a wonderful conversation. Um, you have a news article? Yeah, we got just one this week. We're going to move provinces and move asset classes. This has to do with an ongoing topic that uh, we've discussed in previous episodes is Calgary office. So this was a recent article. It's Calgary office vacancy rate high, but panic wanes. So the gist of the article is this might be a, a turning point in that market. To identify where they are right now, there's almost 270,000 square feet of office space that was returned to the downtown Calgary market in the first three months of 2017, pushing the total amount available to lease at just over 10 million square feet and raising the vacancy rate to 24%. So that obviously is not great news. That's stable though, because I think at the we did our end of the year podcast and at in December, vacancy in Calgary was at 24%, and it had been, inc- it had been increasing at you know 1% to 2 to 3% a month. Uh, throughout basically all of 2016. So if you're looking for a silver lining, it's it's flattened. This yeah, vacancy is stabilized. This, this is the, the yeah, this yeah. is the top of the peak. Yeah. Um, and the reasons cited are activity by non-oil companies. You know, of course, the oil industry dominates the Calgary office market, and that is a continued sore point. But they are seeing other industries picking up the slack. You know, if you have a successful business that is completely disconnected from the oil industry, you can now take advantage of lower rents, consolidate in downtown locations that were not going to be accessible to you when things were booming for oil. You're also seeing a, a flight to quality, which I think goes on in any market with vacancy, which is everybody's moving out of the B and C buildings and into the A buildings. There's so much space in those A buildings at such reasonable rates; it's yeah. not it's not surprising at all. That actually leads to the second reason they quote, which is landlords offering inducements to tenants, lots of free rent, furnished space, and improvement allowances. That obviously is a huge part of the market that will continue. Yeah. And the last part is the Calgary's Beltline, which is immediately south of the downtown, uh, had a small amount of positive absorption for the second straight quarter. Its vacancy rate is outperforming the market at 18 To be clear, we're not saying sell your Toronto apartment and buy Calgary office. <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah, that is, not, that is not the message. <laughs> but things are stabilizing, it sounds Things like. are stabilizing, yeah. yeah. It's good news yeah. for our friends in Calgary. Yeah, and signs of uh, positive growth. We actually hope to maybe discuss that topic further. Yeah, we will more. get out of the GTA-centric um, wave we were in the last two or three episodes I think have been predominantly GTA focused but there's a lot going on here in the real estate world so 
it's, it's keeping our attention. Absolutely. I want to thank everybody for listening to the show and ongoing support. We want to thank our sponsor, First National. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe in iTunes or Google Play. We're active on social media. Our Twitter account is at CRE Podcast, and we uh, do maintain groups on LinkedIn and Facebook. And again, we want to thank you, Jim, for coming in today. It was great. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.